Now then let's uh, turn for our second reading to the passage of Scripture that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. And uh, we'll take a final look at it, God willing, tonight. In John chapter 9, the Gospel according to John and chapter 9, and uh, the opening part of the chapter records the healing of a man who was blind from birth. And uh, I want to read with you the part where the Pharisees interact with the man who is blind or who was blind and also with Christ himself. So let's read from verse 13. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. 
If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore, your sin remains. Again, we pray God's blessing to follow the reading of his word. And let's turn especially again to think of the words of verse 39. For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and particularly these words, and that those who see may be made blind, that those who see may be made blind. And uh, over the past few weeks, with God's help, we've seen the blind seeing, and uh, we're in the process of seeing the seeing becoming blind. And in looking at these things, we've noted three very important spiritual principles, and they are important. They're more important, perhaps, than we realize. They're the kind of principles we should always bear in mind. First of all, there was this one. To whom much is given, much shall be required. That is simply telling us that all of us will be judged according to our privileges. To whom much is given, much shall be required. We need to remember that, especially when we've been given much. Again, the second principle was this. Whoever has to him shall be given. Whoever has to him shall be given. In other words, if we use what we've received and if we make good use of it, then we shall receive more, more reward, more opportunity, or whatever. Whoever has, to him shall be given. The last principle is this, and it's the solemn one that we're looking at today. Whoever has not, from him shall be taken even what he has. And what that tells us, as we saw, is just this, that if we don't use our privileges and opportunities, if we don't use our talents, one day we shall lose everything we've got. And that process of total loss may begin in this life, as the light begins to be removed and 
as God turns our blessings into a curse, but it's certainly made complete in hell. There, even shall be taken from us the little that we had or what we had. Now, of course, these are principles, and although I've tried to make some application of them as we've been going along, they are really principles. And with principles like that, we sometimes need to look at them in a more concrete way. And that's why I think it might be helpful to close uh, our study of this particular verse by looking at the attitude and the actions of the Pharisees in the chapter, sometimes called here the Jews. Sometimes you'll find the expression Jews used interchangeably with Pharisees. Sometimes it's not. But here what we have, and, and this is what Christ is referring to, is the very attitude, the spiritual attitude and the actions of the Pharisees in the chapter. And when you look at them and listen to them, what you're seeing there is a people who are in some ways blind, but certainly being given over to blindness. As we've seen already, there's a sense in which they're blind and there's a sense in which they see. But insofar as they see at all, they are being given over to further spiritual blindness. Now, I want you to notice that this process of being made blind here is a judicial one. It's coming from God. And it's coming through Christ here himself. For judgment I have come into this world, that those who see may be made blind. So as we deal with the light and as we deal with Christ, as we deal with the gospel, we are either brought to vision or else our blindness increases. And both these are from God. Now, you see the increasing blindness of the Pharisees in the chapter here, especially in their arrogance. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that. We've read the chapter now a few times over the past few weeks, and it just bristles with their arrogance. That shouldn't surprise us. The Lord gives grace to the humble, but he knows the proud afar off. That's what the scriptures tell us. He gives grace to the humble, but he knows the proud afar off. They are at a distance from him. Even though with their lips they can claim an earnest, they are at a distance. Humility and pride are very, very important things. And they say a lot about us, whichever one characterizes us. Jesus himself famously said that except we humble ourselves and become like little children, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, the question he was originally asked was who was greatest in the kingdom? And the Lord said, unless we become like children, we can't enter it. And then he says, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom. In other words, it's necessary to become like a little child to enter it. And the more like a child you become, the greater you grow in terms of the kingdom of heaven. Humility, humility, humility should always characterize the child of God. Let's remember that. Anytime pride rises in us, we should immediately think what a terrible destructive witness it is for the kingdom of God. That's why Christ was so quick to check it whenever it appeared in his disciples. And may we check it ourselves when it appears in our own hearts. But these Pharisees here who, who claim to know and who claim to see now you say, we see, 
sadly they as i said they just ooze a spiritual arrogance i suppose it comes out in their claim to see if you were blind you'd have no sin jesus said but now you say we see now of course as we've seen already christ acknowledges that in some way they do see that's absolutely true but they certainly don't see as much as they think they think they know it all and of course it's very hard to teach somebody who knows it all and it's not an endearing quality in anybody when they think they know it all and the sad thing is that it's a characteristic of our age now we may say to some extent that it's a characteristic of the fallen human human nature but some ages are worse than others and sadly we live in such a, a day where every opinion is valid and it doesn't matter how ill-informed the opinion is uh, even children in school are taught that their own opinion is valid and equally valid with everybody else's now when you think about that position how ridiculous a position it is but that's what people are told and so it goes on through life whatever you think is true can be your truth so that even if somebody else thinks you're right or wrong it doesn't matter really because it's your truth and it therefore can't be falsified now here the pharisees are full of a sense of just knowing everything and that makes them so blind as to be blind to evidence you'll notice that in in several ways you'll notice first that they have a willful rejection here of plain evidence a willful rejection of plain evidence the man the blind man's brought before them and he's now seeing everybody knows it it's a public miracle it just it can't be denied the man is not incognito he's been a public figure there for years blind since birth they call his parents they want him they they want the parents to somehow acknowledge that this is not him or that he was never born blind in the first place the whole thing is farcical or at least it would be so farcical if it wasn't so terribly serious and so awful in its consequences they reject the witness of the parents they reject the witness of the people a willful rejection of plain evidence and that just went on it's quite staggering you know that in the 11th chapter of this gospel the last of the great signs is performed you'll remember the gospel of john is uh, organized around seven great signs and the last one is the raising of lazarus and their response to the raising of lazarus was to plot the death of jesus how irrational is that you would have thought that such plain evidence would have would have turned the hearts of the hardest or that it would have illuminated the eyes of the most blind but what about yourself i acknowledge you haven't seen anyone being raised from the dead but there's a lot of evidence that you yourself might be blind to too i know there is because you live in an age of great light you live in an age that is post cross post resurrection when the scriptures themselves have been written you have 2000 years of christian history you have that christian history transforming nations and people 
You have the living spirit of God at work in the lives of countless men and women. And are you rejecting the evidence for that? There's even the Bible and self that you've got open in front of you. The confession of faith has a, an interesting um, paragraph on the way the Bible proves itself to us as the word of God. It speaks of the heavenliness of the matter. The efficacy of the doctrine, in other words, the way it works in the lives of people. And we can't deny that, can't you, really? There is something about Christianity that works. I'm not talking about the hypocritical side. The fact that there are hypocrites proves nothing, except that maybe it proves that the real thing exists. What I'm asking you to examine is the real thing. The efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style. Have you wondered at that? as you handle the scriptures, as you hear them and read them, the consent of all the parts, have you not marveled at that? Have you ever marveled at it? The way in which the Bible, written over a period of 1,500 years, agrees with itself everywhere, from Genesis to Revelation, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, of the scriptures, are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Now, you may deny that, but can you honestly tell me that there are times when you've wondered why you deny it? There are times when you've read and heard the word of God and you realize its transcendence. And you feel its power. And you recognize, almost in spite of yourself, its divine authorship. And you know as you read and hear it that it's not the work of a man or the work of several men. That it is the work of one mind, the product of one spirit, an omniscient spirit, the spirit of God. So the Pharisees here are rejecting very plain evidence, but so are you. And it's not just the Bible. How do you account for the conversion of your friend? How do you account for the change of life in your sister or in your brother? How do you account for it? What is your explanation? Is it purely psychological? It's a great sign of blindness when we willfully reject plain evidence. You'll notice too that these Pharisees are willfully ignoring evidence. That's not the same as rejecting it. Rejecting it is looking at it and not considering it properly. Ignoring evidence is just failing to look at it. It's interesting that these Pharisees say to the blind man in verse 28, in verse 29, sorry, they say that we know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. Now, what an interesting statement to make. If you don't know where he is from, why don't you know where he is from? There's nothing about his life that's hidden. A little patient and honest investigation would reveal that he's not from Galilee for a start, which is where you think he's from, but that he was born in Bethlehem, Judah, according to prophecy, Micah chapter 5. 
When you say you don't know where he's from, if by that you don't know whether he's from heaven or from the earth, why don't you ask his mother? She has a story to tell. Are you going to reject that story? Are you going to reject it from her lips? Investigate his life. It's an open book, just as it is to ourselves in the scriptures. But they made no real effort. No real effort to find out where he was from. A man of the earth or a man of heaven? Today we were considering the servant who buried his talent in the ground and how the Lord called him lazy. Now are you not lazy if you don't stretch out your hand to find out where this Christ is from? It's not good enough to say, we do not know where this fellow is from. Search the scriptures, they testify of him. Search them prayerfully, do an inquiry, and see what you find. As Paul said to King Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. The evidence of scripture is self-authenticating, but it's corroborated elsewhere. It's corroborated in history, it's corroborated in the writings, it's corroborated in archaeology. Look, it's there. It's there. But you're ignoring the evidence. Why? Is it that you don't want it to be true? Well, it's a sign of spiritual blindness when you're rejecting evidence or ignoring evidence. Rejecting plain evidence and ignoring plain evidence. But then again, you'll notice too that there's a willful assumption of evidence too. Notice the claim that they make about the man, about the man Jesus. In verse 24, uh, they called the blind man, or the man who was blind, and they said to him, give God the glory, we know that this man is a sinner. So a minute ago there was the ignorance, we don't know where he's from, but now there's this conviction, you see. We know that this man is a sinner. What you've got here is a willful assumption of evidence. We know he's a sinner. How do you know it? How do you know that he's a sinner? Have you seen him sin? It's an astonishing thing that shortly after this, at the very close of his public ministry, Christ turned round to the people and said, which of you can convict me of sin? And nobody could. Nobody could point to a sin that he had committed in word or in deed. Of course, they have no access to his thoughts, but nobody could point to a sin in word or in deed. And when it came to the charges that were brought before the Sanhedrin and the charges that were brought before Pilate, well, they were trumped up and they acknowledged that they were trumped up. None of the witnesses could agree with each other. They made up charges. So what was his sin? We know that this man was a sinner. If it was the sin of claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to be the Son of God, well, why not examine that claim, as I said before? After all, are they not a people who are waiting for a Messiah to come? Had that not been prophesied from the beginning? Someone had to be the Messiah after all. There's no point in simply rejecting everybody who comes along. Can he authenticate himself? Can he authenticate himself? If they would look and listen, they would see the signs. Is that not what Jesus said to them so often? If you don't believe what I say, consider the works that I do. Are these works not the works of God? Were these things not prophesied? 
as things the Messiah would do on his entrance into the world. Heal the lame, give sight to the blind, and loosen the string of the tongue. It's interesting that they said, as I referred to a minute ago, uh, when when a, a disagreement broke out amongst the Pharisees about who he was, you'll remember that Nicodemus, a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin, um, tried to speak up for Christ, told them not to condemn him without examining him properly. And they just turned on him, check for yourself, they said. The prophet can't come from Galilee. But he never came from Galilee. This is the point, you see. We know this man is a sinner. Was it his Sabbath breaking that's a sin? They're upset that he gave the man vision on a Sabbath. They're upset that he facilitated the man's entry into the temple proper to worship God. Well, to say that he's a Sabbath breaker is twisting the evidence, is it not? When did Christ denigrate the Sabbath? When did he ever speak against the Sabbath? Did he not always defend it? Did he not always keep it? Did he not always love it? Did he not teach in several passages how the Sabbath ought to be kept? But no, we know that this man is a sinner. That's the blind for you. Rejecting evidence, ignoring evidence, assuming evidence, twisting evidence. Rejecting, ignoring, assuming and twisting. Nothing wrong with the light. What's wrong is their unwillingness to recognize that light. It's shining, but they don't call it the glory of God. In fact, they are increasingly calling it devilish. But they claim to see. As Jesus points out, the worst thing is, he says, is that you're not blind. And what's more, you claim that you see. And in context, The Pharisees' claim to see is pretty comprehensive. We really understand. Now, some people claim to see things in in different ways. For example, people who don't believe in God at all claim to be seeing ones. There's a whole period of history. It's pretty much uh, 18th century. That's referred to as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason usually called the Enlightenment. I don't know if you've really thought for a while about what that actually tells us, the Enlightenment. It it means that people who who began to acquire prominence in in various fields of labor and study thought themselves as people who had the light, and therefore the age of reason. In other words, the, the light that they had was the light of reason. And these people were discarding um, God as the source of knowledge, as the source of our science and history and morality and spirituality and everything. They're rejecting God as the source of it, but reason as the source. Um, Enlightenment. The enlightened ones. One of the reasons that's interesting is because the new atheists that have acquired so much prominence over the last few years always speak of themselves as the people who have understanding. They've discarded belief in anything that's not material. In fact, John Lennox, the Christian apologist, drew attention to the fact that some of them have set up a prominent website that's known as The Brides, because 
the brights are the people who understand these things. You see, they, they're the ones they see, who see and they're the ones who understand. Now, you may say, well, it's all very well for you to knock them, but, but you claim for yourself that you have light and you claim that the Christians have light. Well, that's very true. But the light that we claim to have is a light that doesn't arise from our own reason. It is a light that shines from God. It's not our investigative skill that's brought us to it. Uh, no man by searching could have found out God. No man ever can. This is a light that God has seen fit to shine and given us grace to see too. But these brights are brightened themselves. They've thrown off superstition and religion and these things that belong, as they say, to the dark ages, and they are the brights. Um, do you feel that yourself too? Do you think deep down in your own heart that you're superior to Christian people? Do you pity them? Do you, do you look down upon them because they're adhering to something that you've grown out of and thought yourself out of. You're now an educated person. You belong to the enlightened or to the brights. But again, you see, I take you back to where I was a minute ago. Have you ever looked at this light? Have you ever really examined the Bible? Have you looked at the light? Have you examined the claims of Christ? No. I can pretty much guarantee you that your dismissal of it is fairly secondhand. And I've said this before, I make no great pretense to excel in any discipline at all. There are so many disciplines where my knowledge is more or less minimal. But I would never, never, ever venture onto a debating platform with as little knowledge of religion as Richard Dawkins has. Never. Every utterance that comes from his mouth or from the mouths of Sam Harris or the late Christopher Hitchens or whoever they be, on the subject of religion, they know next to nothing. Next to nothing. That's the tragedy, you see. They just don't really look at the light. And one day you'll pass from this world. Don't look at, don't do that without having looked closely at this light. Um, but these Pharisees are not, of course, atheists, humanists, or unbelievers. They are religious people. They consider themselves to be enlightened religious people. We see. In fact, they claim to be Moses' disciples in verse 29. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, that is Christ, we do not know where he is from. Well, if they're Moses' disciples, why not follow him? Moses, after all, did say in Deuteronomy 18.15 that the Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from your midst. Him shall you hear. I don't know if you've ever noticed that there's a close relationship between that verse and the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses appears with Jesus and God tells the people to hear ye him. In other words, here is the prophet that I would raise up, the one of whom Moses prophesied. Now, the Jews recognize that passage to be messianic, that the Lord God will raise up a prophet like me from your midst. Him shall you hear. But why not ask, could this 
be the Christ? Did they really serve Moses? Are they really Moses' disciples? I think it's fair to say that their service to Moses is a kind of lip service. They, they belong to the kind of people that worship heroes in the past, but if these heroes were actually living in the present, they would stone them. Christ said that to them, you build the tombs of the prophets. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. But you witness against yourselves that you are the children of these murderers. In other words, by garnishing their tombs, by adorning them and beautifying them. What you're doing is not celebrating their lives, he says. You are actually finishing their burials. That's not how you intend your action to be understood, but that is how I interpret your action. You have a hand in their burial. You had a hand in your death because if they came back to life, you'd be the first to stone them. I've heard people praise John Knox. If he was to return, they would stone him. There are people who read Jeremiah the prophet. They would stone him if he came back to our churches. There are people who say they believe in the Bible, but their lives demonstrate that they don't really believe in the Bible. There are ministers who stand in the pulpit and preach it, but they have no truck whatsoever with the, with the prophets and the apostles. And you'll notice the, the snobbery that these Pharisees have for the new convert. A religious snobbery. They hold him in contempt. In verse 34, you were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? You were completely born in sins. In other words, they certainly subscribe to the idea that if the man was born blind, then that's a condemnation on him from the womb. It's a judgment on his sinful life. It may be a judgment too on the parents. Either way, you're born in sins and you teach us. That's, of course, because the man had the audacity to point out some things which they should have humbly received. Since the world began, the man said to them, it has been unheard of that anyone opens the eyes of one who was born blind. He's just done it on his own authority. He didn't use a staff. He didn't call upon the name of the Lord. He just spoke himself. No one's done this before. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? Notice the arrogance again the arrogance of those who are spiritually blind. And in, in verse 40, when they hear Jesus speaking about the blind seeing, and those who are seeing becoming blind, they say, are we blind also? Don't again misunderstand that. That's effectively saying, how dare you call us blind? How dare you insinuate that we are that? It's the self-righteousness, the arrogance of the spiritually blind who think they see plenty light, but no understanding. And the world itself will acknowledge that there's none so blind as those who will not see. And that's what's happening here. It's, it's what we have at the beginning of John's Gospel. In chapter 3 and verse 19, John says this, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. 
In other words, they were disposed to the darkness. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Now, that's sometimes why people stop going to church. It's sometimes why people stop reading the Bible, because they feel exposed by it. They feel threatened by it. Uh, but that's a dangerous response to run away from the light. And slowly but surely, without the grace of God, these people are given over to the darkness that they prefer. And that's a judgment on them. It's God saying, you want the darkness? You love the darkness? You prefer it to the light? Well, here it is. Here it is. And um, what happens in the life of such people sometimes, and it's a terrifying thing to see it in this world, is that the light itself becomes a darkness to them. Their Bibles begin to close and they yield nothing to them. The Bible becomes like the pillar of cloud and fire in the Old Testament. You, you remember that it led the people of God. That's easy to understand. But at one point, God moved the pillar of fire. He moved it between the Egyptians and the Israelites. It, it was going in front of the Israelites, but it moved between the Israelites and the Egyptians. We're told that it gave light to God's people, but darkness to the enemies of the Lord. And that's how the word of God gradually becomes to these people. It just becomes darkness because they didn't want it to be light. We're told that that's why Christ began preaching in parables. These parables conveyed the word to those who wanted to know its meaning, but it remained a mystery to those who did not. And as far as the Pharisees go, Jesus said that at last these things are hidden from your eyes. He said that at the very close of his ministry. At last, now, he says, these things are hidden from your eyes. Therefore, Brood of vipers, he says, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains, where? Upon yourselves. It's not dealt with there. It's a burden you carry there. It's a burden on your backs. It's a burden on your consciences. It's written in your accounts. It's something to be given account for on the last day. It remains. How blessed it is tonight, Christian friend, to know that your sin doesn't remain. I know there is remaining sin in you, but that's not what I'm talking about. Your sin no longer remains. It doesn't remain to be given account for. It's been taken away. It's been expunged. It's been blotted out by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sad thing is that the only person who could have done this for the Pharisees there is the one who is talking to them, the man who is the light of the world, the light that they are choosing to reject. So progressively, he is hidden from their eyes. And it's in that context that I want you to note his last public address. Now, we read this. If you just turn forward in your Bibles, uh, for a second, to the passage that we read at the beginning, John 12, John 12 and verse 35. John 12, 35. Let's read it. Then Jesus said to them, 
a little while longer is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Then these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Now this hidden, I think pretty much carries a double meaning. Not only does he actually disappear from view because he's going to close himself in with the disciples for the last week of his ministry and John 13 onwards to chapter 21 is the last week of his ministry. Chapter 20 is the last week of his ministry. But he's actually hidden spiritually too. The light is being removed. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Now listen to what it says in verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But, but it's the next verse. And the next verse again, verse 39, read it. Therefore, they could not believe, could not. Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when, his, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. This, this, is a, this is the judicial blindening. This is the removal of the light. This is taking away the ability even to see it. It's judicial. And it's what we deserve. Now, the blind seeing. It's a wonderful thing. And I pray through our study of these things that that will be your experience. Even as the word is preached, even as it's preached now, you are seeing the glory of Christ and your need of his salvation in your life. And if you see it, yield. Yield to it. Come to the light. Confess your sins in the light. Walk in the light of a new life. Receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, and the Holy Spirit to be your new guide and your new helper. The alternative is to watch the light fade away, as your power to see is even taken away. I refer to the Queen of Sheba in the morning, and how God found her and how she found God, because she didn't have a lot of light, but she used the light that she had. God sent her more, and she used that. Jesus says that the Queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment and condemn his own generation. Because she repented of the wisdom of Solomon, and Jesus says, a greater than Solomon is amongst you. Will she rise up against you on the day of judgment? She did so much with so little. You've done so little with so much. If she doesn't rise up against you, have you ever thought who might rise up against you? If she rises up against that generation in which Christ lived, who might rise up against yourself? Who may the Lord raise there on the day of judgment and 
make to stand beside you for a little while? Is it the person who sat beside you for ages in the pew? Is it someone in our congregation? Is it somebody amongst us now who came from virtually nowhere with just a tiny little fraction of the privileges and talents that you had in your life with your upbringing and your teaching? Are they going to stand beside you on the day of judgment because they did so much with so little when you did so little with so much? Walk in the light while you have in the light. While you have the light, believe the light that you may become sons of light. Let me leave you with this because if you don't, if you don't, although you're not yet blind, the day will come when you will wish you had been. And is that not a thought? Although you're not yet blind, the day will come when you will wish you had been. So why should that be you? There's another blaze of light coming towards you in the preaching of the gospel just now. Light. Come to the light. Come to the light of the world. Come in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. May he bless our meditation on that portion of his own word.